This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, I'm Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we worked and the stigma of failure in an industry systemically designed for you to fail. Join us as we dive into the real life stories of survivors, experts, and advocates to debunk the common myths and fallacies of cults, scams, and multi-level marketing. Welcome to our second annual month long of holiday magic, named after the now defunct cosmetics pyramid scheme owned by our shady friend, William Penn Patrick. I am so excited to be bringing you even more amazing content to keep you willingly informed and scam free all season long. Please join us every Sunday and Wednesday throughout the month of December for brand new episodes filled with the interviews, topics, stories, and history that you asked for. All frauds, scams, pyramid schemes, and cults all month long. Happy holidays, hunbots and hunbros, from me, Abby, and Life After MLM. Hey, hunbots and hunbros, welcome back to day two of Holiday Magic. Today we have a bonus episode for you that was inspired by my chat with Sarah. So we were talking and she was like, you really got to look into Keith. Do you know about Consumers Byline? And I was like, yeah, I really got to look into this. And so today's episode is going to be about Keith. And because it's about Keith, I'm going to be talking about some pretty heavy stuff, including sex trafficking of adults and minors and some mysterious deaths, possibly suicide, maybe alleged homicide. I'm not really sure. But again, really, really heavy stuff. And I just wanted to give you guys a heads up. Secondly, I wanted to say thank you to all of our amazing new Patreon members. I appreciate you guys so much. So thank you to Jen Island, Stephanie Phillips, Ashley Arbuckle, Christy Bozeman, Pluto, Jolie Jabru, Betty Ann Keener, and Megan Bennett. Thank you guys so much. You have absolutely no idea what it means to me. And I'm so excited to welcome you to the family. So this year, we're talking about Christmas scams. So before we dive into Keith, I'm going to talk to you about probably the holiday scam I get asked about the most. So we talked about this one last year as well, and we'll talk about it again next year too, and every year after that until people get it and realize and it stops happening. And that is the gift-giving pyramid scheme, or as most people this time of year call it, secret sister or secret Santa. And this is not to be confused with the real Secret Santa gift exchange. In fact, I'm involved with a few of them this year. So let's break down both of these popular Christmas gift exchanges so that you can make sure that you're participating in the right kind. So the scam goes as follows. Buy one gift and receive several in return. It sounds enticing and the number of gifts in return can range anywhere from 10 to 36 that I've seen. And if you Google Secret Sister Christmas, you will come up with all sorts of agencies warning you against the scam. The FTC, the BBB, 
Even Reader's Digest and Wikipedia have warnings about it. The thief can send a variety of messages to participate. Phishing emails, e-cards, or even social media messages from your friends. With an attractive invitation. Send just one gift and receive up to 36 gifts back. Now, I was born in 1981, and back then we had this phenomenon going around called chain letters. And the collective groans from Gen X are echoing in my brain. You would get a letter in the mail from a friend and would have a list of names and addresses and a set of instructions. Now, this is a classic pyramid scheme that I am sure I convinced my parents to let me participate in multiple times, regardless of the exact same outcome. The chain letter scam might actually be my very first pyramid scheme. Hmm. What you do is you take that list of names and you remove the name and the address from the top of the list, shift everyone on the list up one spot, and then place your name and address at the bottom. Then you make six copies and you send the gift in question to the person who's at the top of the list and pass on the new six letters to six unsuspecting friends. And then you wait. If everyone does their job and moves up the list, adding new names and participants, eventually you should end up at the top of 36 letters. But this perfect outcome also requires that every single person follows through exactly as planned. And we know that self-regulation isn't the best unit of productivity. And even then, there will still be people at the bottom of the pyramid. And at this point, exponentially, with each letter that is sent and each process repeated, that bottom level of what Robert Fitzpatrick calls the last ones in, they get nothing. And if you really sit down and think about it, 36 people sending you one gift, if everyone only has to buy one gift, where do the other 35 gifts come from? Well, at least 35 people who probably won't get anything, right? And now your personal information is out floating around, all because of a fun game that seemed too good to be true in the first place. I mean, if 100 people play, there are only 100 gifts in play, not 3,600. The entire scam is predicated on the inevitable failure of the majority. I've seen Secret Sister played with books, stickers, wine, scarves, gift cards, $10 ambiguous gifts. Another variation asks you to submit your email to a list where participants get to pick a name and send money to strangers to, quote, pay it forward. There is even one called Secret Santa Dog, where your dog can join a pyramid scheme and buy a $10 gift for their secret dog. And it's this component that makes it a crime, the exchange of tangible monetary goods. That's where it becomes illegal. If you wanted to start a chain letter exchange with just kind words of affirmation or dad jokes, great. It's when money gets involved that it becomes a crime. So how is this different from a traditional, not scammy holiday gift exchange? Well, in most of those cases, you bring home the same number of gifts that you brought. One of the most popular gift exchanges at this time of the year is known as the White Elephant. It goes by a variety of names and sets of rules, and you may also know it as a Yankee Swap or Dirty Santa. I've been to some where it's a new gift wrapped of a certain price point, and I've been to some where it's a funny gag gift or a homemade gift, maybe treats or a craft. Or my favorite was after the holidays, everyone brought something to re-gift, but it's always the same. Bring a gift, take a gift, regardless of the rules. Sometimes you can steal gifts, sometimes you draw names. Every year, my salon family has a big favorite things gift exchange, and we all bring six of the same thing and take home six totally different things. It's super fun, and as a single mom, it's the fanciest gifts that I get all year. This year, I got a Dior Glow lip kit, and oh my God, amazing. I hate that I held out for so long on Dior and it was worth the hype this whole time. I also got a couple holiday lounge sets, a new blanket, some Grinchy paraphernalia. Don't even ask. It's become an obsession with us. 
Last year, I got everyone Grinch robes. And this year, I got everyone inflatable Grinch shotgun rider carpool buddies for their cars. And they're like three feet tall. (laughs) Don't worry. I got them something actually good too. (laughs) But my point here is that you should be leaving your exchanges with the same amount of gifts that you came with. And this goes for cookie and recipe exchanges and ornament exchanges and whatever exchanges. This time of year can be difficult and taking the joy out of gift giving sucks. If you're thinking about wanting to do a gift exchange with friends, I cannot recommend Elfster highly enough. I use it too and I love it. So please keep your eyes out for these two good to be true gift exchanges and stick to the legal ones. Okay, so we're about to talk about Keith, and I wanted to give you a quick heads up again that this guy's super gross, and you might feel a certain way, and that's totally normal. Um, I've been researching this for about a week, aside from watching The Vow and reading Sarah's book and all of this stuff extra that I already knew. So, uh, oh my gosh, the stuff that I found, and uh, anyway, I'm about to tell you, just buckle up, because this guy is so gross, I... Uh, I just, I can't even. Keith Allen Ranieri was born August 26th in 1960 and lived in Brooklyn, New York until he was five and his family relocated to Suffren, New York, a small village 31 miles northwest of Manhattan. His parents separated when he was eight. As a child, his father allegedly claimed that what they did was told Keith about how gifted and intelligent he was and that he said it was almost like a switch went off and suddenly overnight, Keith turned into like Jesus Christ and that he was superior and better than everyone and like he was a deity. And he said that it was dramatic and profound. He said that saying that went right to his head. Keith described himself as a childhood genius who could speak in full sentences by one, read at two, and was a proficient pianist by the time he was 12. He also claimed to have read Isaac Asimov's mind control themed work, Second Foundation at age 12 and credited the novel for his inspiration to create Nexium. His mother said that by 13, Keith had dozens of girls calling the house, and she was overhearing his conversations with them where he was telling every single girl the same thing. I love you. You're the special one. You're important. You're the only one in my life, and I love you. And she thought, he's saying this to all these girls? He's clearly lying because not all of them are special. In 1982, Keith graduated from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, with three degrees but a 2.26 GPA. Having failed or barely passed many of the upper-level math and science classes that he had bragged about taking. According to the Albany Times Union, in 1984, a then 24-year-old Keith seduced and assaulted 15-year-old Gina Melita, and after ending their relationship, did the same to her 15-year-old friend, Gina Hutchinson. Keith believed that Gina Hutchinson was a Buddhist goddess meant to be with him. Gina ended up dropping out of school to follow Keith and even participated in some of his MLM schemes before ending her life in 2002 at a Tibetan Buddhist monastery in Woodstock, New York. Throughout the 1980s, Keith was involved with Amway. I couldn't find much information about his time there, but from what I could find, Keith had an intense, obsessive fascination with the organization, as well as Scientology and neurolinguistic programming. This would have been after the Dexter Yeager Tools Cult showdown, and in being involved with Amway, what Keith really learned about multi-level marketing was that it was a system he could rig to his benefit. So he realized the best way to make money in an MLM was to start his own, which he called Consumers Byline, or CBI. 
For $219 a year, members of CBI could get huge discounts on a wide variety of products. Things like groceries, appliances, cars, skincare, clothing, tech, and even hotel stays. CBI offered it all. And in typical pyramid scheme fashion, where members made the real money was in the quote selling of CBI memberships or getting people to sign up and join on. If a current CBI member sold a membership to non-members, they would get a little cut of the profit. You could cancel your CBI membership at any time, so it was very enticing for people to join just to buy what they needed and then cancel if they wanted to. Within a couple of years, the company had employed 150 people and had quickly grown to over 200,000 members. It was at a CBI pitch meeting in 1991 that Keith would meet Tony Natali. Two years earlier, Keith was listed as having one of the highest IQs in the Guinness Book of World Records, 240. This had intrigued Tony, and she was interested in what he might have to say. She recalls, someone with that much intellectual capacity? What was it that he was bringing to the table? Tony and her husband joined CBI, and they quickly became top sellers in their area. One time, during a trip to the headquarters, Keith smelled cigarette smoke on Tony and asked her if she wanted to quit. He led her to a quiet room, and they talked while he touched, quote, trigger points on her hands. After what felt like only 15 minutes, Tony returned to her husband, where she learned that she had been gone for over two hours. She never smoked again. Within a year, Tony and her son moved to Clifton Park, New York, to be closer to Keith, and her marriage fell apart soon after. Tony would spend the better part of the next eight years in a relationship with Keith. By the end of 1993, Consumers Byline had grown to 250,000 members across several states and $33 million in annual revenue. Keith was making about $19 from each of the quarter million members a month. CBI had sold over $1 billion in goods and services and employed 80 people. He claimed he was worth $50 million, but according to a former CBI member, Keith carried no money, slept all day, showed up to work at 10 p.m., and would often hold meetings at 1 a.m. The business began to crumble, debt swelled, and customers and members started to complain. Regulators in 20 states opened investigations into CBI. Amid the CBI pyramid scheme scandal, Tony helped Keith open a health and wellness MLM called National Health Network in 1994, as well as run a health supplement store and cafe in Clifton Park. Both had closed by 1999. By now, CBI was being investigated in 25 states, and the New York Attorney General filed a civil suit alleging that consumers' byline was a pyramid scheme. The ruling stated, The emphasis in Consumers Byline Inc. is clearly not on the sale of a product, but on recruiting new organizational rows to boost membership. Indeed, the only product in CBI is the membership. CBI is a classic pyramid scheme. The emphasis in CBI is clearly not on the sale of a product, but on recruiting to boost membership. Like all pyramids, CBI's matrix is destined to collapse. And in true MLM fashion, Keith settled the case in 1996, but never actually admitted to any wrongdoing. He signed a consent order in New York and was ordered to pay a $40,000 fine, of which he only paid $9,000. He was also permanently banned from ever participating in any chain distribution scheme again. And by 1997, CBI was completely closed. The same year, Tony and Keith's relationship began to deteriorate. So Tony seeks outside help from a nurse and a practitioner of hypnosis and neurolinguistic programming named Nancy Salzman. Tony recalls, Nancy said, you're so wonderful. How can I help you? So I said, 
Well, you can help me with my boyfriend. He had grandiose ideas and his hours were becoming erratic again. She listened and she said, oh, that's easy. I can help you. He's a sociopath. They met and four days later, she came out with the glazed eyes and gave me the, you don't know who he is. And I was like, wow, there goes another one. And here's a shocker. Nancy was vulnerable. She had just gone through a tough time and she'd found Keith's charm to be captivating. And she fell for him hook, line and sinker. He became her quote, spiritual guide. And she became his most loyal follower. So Keith and Nancy go on to team up and they found a personal development program that they called Executive Success Program or ESP in 1998. The company offered personal development and emotional management seminars to help attendees achieve self-fulfillment. A few years later, the program would be rebranded as Nexium. Do you ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet just for anyone to find? I promise it's more than you think. Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, even information about your family members. It's all being compiled by data brokers and openly sold online. This can lead to a lot of problems, including identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. But now you can protect your privacy with Delete Me. Signing up for the service is super easy. Just provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. They send you regular, personalized privacy reports showing what info they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I got my report, and I was floored with the results. Of the 105 data brokers they checked, 83 of them had my data. Delete Me then removed 173 listings of my personal data off the internet. And they make sure that it stays off too. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me at a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and use promo code MLM at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and enter code MLM at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash MLM code MLM. And then he started psychologically manipulating Tony, as she recalls. What he kind of does is he elicits as much information as he can, almost as a friend you're sharing with. And then he takes those things and he manipulates you with them. Tony also alleged that Keith had begun to force himself on her against her will, sometimes while her son was sleeping in the next room. His followers began calling him Vanguard, a nod to his favorite video game in which the destruction of one's enemies increased one's own power and they would bow whenever he entered the room. When she learned that he had had sexual encounters with a number of these women, some of who were underage, she left. This was 1999. Keith went into full-on control mode and began sending female followers to Tony's home at all hours to plead with her to come back, claiming that he was dying and she was the only one that could save him. He wrote her a letter, which was filled with lovesick bullshit and threats if she didn't return. 5 Dear Tony, this letter is meant for the person I refer to as Sweetheart, 
My sweetheart was a joyous, loving being, a fighting angel that upheld the right, no matter how hard, and had the strength to do whatever it took. My sweetheart swore on the life of her son that she would never hurt me, leave me, and would be loyal to me, no matter what happened. Ideally, the letter below is to be read alone, in privacy, while the enclosed tape is playing. It is also preferred if the accompanying rose is visible and fragrant. The whiteness of the rose symbolizes pure love. The tape contains the song Moonlight Sonata, First Movement, played two different ways twice. So please, go to a private place alone, set the rose, turn down the lights, put on the tape, and listen to me play to you as you read this letter. I hope that our eight years together mean enough to you to afford us this last embrace. Dear sweetheart, you may now understand for the first time truly how I love you. Although you have wronged me more than you will ever wrong anyone else, I still offer my hand to you. Who else would ever be so committed, so loyal? Ask yourself if anyone put in my position would still be there for you. And it goes on and on and on. And the link to the whole thing is in the show notes if you want to read it. But Tony didn't return. And once it also became evident to Keith, that's when the lawsuit started. Tony would be in petty legal battles with him for the next eight years. And in 2003, U.S. bankruptcy judge Robert Littlefield wrote, This matter smacks of a jilted fellow's attempt at revenge or retaliation against his former girlfriend, with many attempts at tripping her up along the way. When that didn't work, they spied on her relentlessly. Kristen Keefe, a longtime member and mother of Keith's son, compiled a 25-page report that was, quote, almost frightening in its level of detail. After Tony left, Keith's new partner became Barbara Boucher, and they were together for nine years. During that time, he promised her a child that would change the world, but that never happened. What did happen, though, was Keith was able to successfully, quote, borrow more than $1.6 million from her, lose it in bad investments, and refuse to repay her, claiming that it had all been a gift. When she eventually left, Keith would harass her in court for years, suing her six times and accusing her of extortion for trying to get her money back from him. She was also called as a witness for four other cases against other enemies in three states before eight judges, resulting in over 800 filings containing over 16,000 pages. The costs exceeded $400,000, and Barbara declared bankruptcy. This is starting to sound so much like Scientology. By 2002, Nexium was growing more popular, and that is when Keith and Nancy successfully recruited the Bronfman sisters, Sarah and her sister Claire, the heiresses to the Seagram liquor fortune, which was sold to Vivendi in 2000 for $30 billion, with a B. The Bronfman bankroll will prove to be a very successful endeavor for Nexium. Later that same year, Kristen Snyder, an environmental consultant, paid $7,000 and enrolled in a 16-day personal development course conducted in Anchorage, Alaska. She thought Keith was incredible, and the following January signed up for another 16-day, this time with her partner as well. On February 6th, 10 days into her second 16-day, Kristen started claiming that she was pregnant with Keith's child. She was last seen leaving the course, and two days later, her car was found 120 miles from Anchorage. A note was found that read, I attended a course called Executive Success Programs, based out of Anchorage, Alaska, and Albany, New York. I was brainwashed, and my emotional center of my brain was killed and turned off. I still have feeling in my external skin, 
but my internal organs are rotting. I'm sorry, life. I didn't know I was already dead. May we persist into the future. A separate page added, no need to search for my body. A witness at Keith's 2019 trial testified that after she disappeared, Keith paid $24,000 to obtain the password to Kristen's email account. In October of the same year, Keith was featured on the cover of Forbes magazine in what Nexium expected to be a positive fluff piece, and what I imagine Mark and Deanne thought Lula Rich would be. The cover story was titled, The World's Strangest Executive Coach, and in it, Keith and Nexium are exposed as a cult of personality with a wealth of previously unpublished information, including all about consumers' byline and how he's called Vanguard by his followers. Edgar Bronfman Sr., father of Sarah and Claire, called it a cult. And from that point forward, Edgar Bronfman Sr. was an enemy of Nexium. A witness testified that his computer was hacked and his emails were monitored by Nexium for years. After a few years of massive growth, a $2 million project, and trying to distance themselves as a cult, a collaboration with the Dalai Lama finally happened. On May 6, 2009, the Dalai Lama traveled to Albany to give a talk, and during the event, presented Keith with a traditional Tibetan Buddhist ceremonial white scarf on stage. He also wrote the foreword in a book that Keith had co-authored. Though eight years later, it was revealed that in 2009, Sarah Bronfman had had a sexual relationship with the Dalai Lama's gatekeeper, who had arranged the appearance, and who, as a monk, had taken a vow of celibacy. He was replaced. Later that same year, there was a mass exodus of some of Nexium's top leaders, citing, quote, concerns about unethical practices and the alleged abuse of his leadership status to sexually manipulate women in the organization. They were dubbed the Nexium Nine. Barbara Boucher was among those who left. In 2015, a secret subgroup was created within the organization. The creation of a group wasn't out of place. Nexium was actually made up of several companies, everything a separate entity, Keith's name on nothing. They had groups for women like Jeunesse, for men like Society of Protectors, for actors like The Source, and this new secret subgroup just for women called DOS, or Dominus Obsequious Sororium, literally translated into the owner of the obedient sister or the master over the slave women. DOS operated with levels of women slaves headed by masters. Slaves were expected to recruit slaves of their own, becoming masters themselves. Slaves owed service not only to their own masters, but also to the masters above them in the DOS pyramid. An estimated 150 women joined DOS, including Sarah Edmondson from the last episode. Even though those involved in the upper levels of DOS denied his participation, Keith actually sat at the very top of the pyramid as Grand Master. The first few members of DOS were Allison Mack from Smallville, Nikki Klein from Battlestar Galactica, and also Sarah's third recruit, and Lauren Salzman, Nancy's daughter, and Sarah's master and best friend. All three women were also Keith's sexual partners. They recruited for DOS without letting anyone know about Keith's involvement, claiming it was women-run and women-only. To even be able to hear about DOS, you had to provide collateral, basically private information and photos to prove your loyalty to the group. Each time you had to provide collateral, it got more high stakes, embarrassing, and private. DOS demanded deeds to property, access to bank accounts, highly personal information, sexually explicit photos and videos, and unbeknownst to these women, it was all being funneled to Keith. He then tasked his inner circle master's assignments for their slaves, 
including instructions for seduction assignments in which the masters implicitly or expressly directed their slaves to engage in sexual activity with Keith. This act was the basis for the eventual sex trafficking claim. Some of the methods that Keith used are straight out of the bite model, including encouraging masters to use demeaning and derogatory language and racial slurs for humiliation purposes. Slaves were sleep deprived from forced readiness drills, which required them to respond to their masters 24 seven. Slaves received corporal punishments, including flogging, paddling, and cold showers. Keith also had plans to use cages before DOS was exposed. Slaves were required to do their master's bidding, including running errands and cleaning their homes. Keith had a preference for exceptionally thin women, so DOS members had extremely restrictive diets and had to document every food that they ate. The extreme diet caused women to stop menstruating and made their hair fall out. Keith would demand that the women be excruciatingly thin because he claims that extra weight on a woman disrupted his sexual energy, even though he was known to indulge in, quote, junk food. Slaves were also ordered to remain celibate and grow their pubic hair. They were told that they were being given these orders to benefit themselves, but it was really part of the sexual grooming. Some slaves were branded in their pelvic areas with Keith's initials, K-A-R, using a cauterizing pen. The slaves were told it was going to be a small tattoo using a symbol for the elements. When designing and planning the branding, Keith told Allison, quote, the person should probably ask to be branded. They should probably say that before they're held down, so it doesn't seem like they're being coerced. And Sarah talks in great detail about that experience in her book, Scarred. On June 5th, 2017, Frank Parlato, former Nexium publicist and creator of The Frank Report, was the first to report that there was a secret society called DOS, and the women known as slaves were branded with Keith's initials, with an article called Branded Slaves and Master Ranieri. In October the same year, the New York Times exposed Nexium and DOS, and Keith fled the country to Mexico with a small group of loyal women. A search warrant was issued for Keith's emails and an arrest warrant a few weeks later. Keith was found hiding in a closet at a luxury villa in Puerto Vallarta. There was supposed to be a recommitment orgy that evening with his inner circle, but it didn't happen. He was arrested, deported to the U.S., and transferred to the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn. He was accused of a variety of crimes related to DOS, including sex trafficking, conspiracy for sex trafficking, and conspiracy to commit forced labor. United States Attorney Richard Donahue stated that Keith created a secret society of women with whom he had sex and had branded with his initials, coercing them with the threat of releasing their highly personal information and taking their assets. Keith's federal racketeering trial began on May 7th, and a lot of it is covered in The Vow Season 2, including meeting and hearing the stories of some of the prosecution's witnesses, which included Nexium member Lauren Salzman, filmmaker Mark Vicente, victims Sylvie, Daniela, Jay, and Nicole, and cult educator Rick Allen Ross. The defense rested without calling any witnesses. On June 19th, 2019, the jury found Keith Allen Ranieri guilty on all charges after only five hours of deliberation. The acts included sexual exploitation of Camilla as a minor and possession of child sexual abuse material depicting her, sex trafficking and forced labor of Nicole, attempted sex trafficking of Jay, identity theft against Edgar Bronfman, James Labrafito, Ashana Chinoa, Mariana, and Pam Kafritz subjecting Daniela to document servitude, or human trafficking, for labor and services, 
conspiracy to alter records for use in an official proceeding, and sex trafficking conspiracy, forced labor conspiracy, racketeering conspiracy, and wire fraud conspiracy. While awaiting sentencing, Keith's attorney filed two motions for a new trial that were both denied by the judge. COVID held up quite a bit of the prison system, so Keith wasn't sentenced until October 27, 2020. During the waiting period, because visitation wasn't allowed, those still loyal to Keith would gather outside the jail and dance for him, hold signs, and flash messages with lights. This odd display is caught on camera and shown in The Vow Season 2, and had I not known that this was real, I'm not sure that I would have believed it. It's strange, culty behavior and worth the watch if for nothing but education alone. Come to find out, Keith had been communicating with a devout follower named Sunil Chakravorty, not only taking calls from prison, but Sunil would actually record them and later produce the audio as a podcast called Ranieri Speaks. Keith was also instructing him to get more women to dance for him at the jail. When the prison staff learned of this, they had Keith move to another cell, out of the line of sight of his fans. In response, Keith encouraged his fans to get on the prison staff's good side to get him moved back by bribing them with coffee and donuts. I cannot make this shit up. But none of that even matters because the federal judge sentenced Keith to 120 years in prison and fined him $1.75 million. In 2021, he was transferred to his permanent prison at the United States Penitentiary Tucson in Arizona. It is the only maximum security facility that is specially designated for sex offenders in the federal prison system. The judge also ruled that the 21 victims of Keith should receive a total of $3.46 million in restitution. This includes payments to cover the cost of removing the DOS-related scarification, ongoing mental health care, and making labor trafficking victims whole. Oddly enough, a number of Keith's alleged lovers suffered untimely deaths. Gina Hutchinson was found dead of a gunshot wound to the head. Kristen Snyder disappeared and was last seen at a Nexium event. Live-in girlfriends Barbara Jeske and Pam Kafritz both died from what was diagnosed as cancer at the time, but is alleged to have been actually subtle poisoning. Keith's partner Kristen Keefe survived cervical cancer, and in 2009, Keith was filmed claiming, quote, I've had people killed because of my beliefs. In 2019, Investigation Discovery aired a documentary titled The Lost Women of Nexium," speculating that Keith had committed homicide. According to that program, a woman who lived with Keith had developed bladder cancer and submitted a hair sample that reportedly revealed the evidence of dangerous levels of bismuth and barium. So... Keith's kind of a dick, but I feel like we all knew that already. And none of these allegations even surprise me at all. I've always found it so odd that so many people so close to him died mysteriously. So many red flags, and it started with Amway. Somehow it always links back to Amway. So thank you for sticking with me for another bonus history lesson into the scam fathers of the past. And until next time thank you so much for listening to life after mlm don't forget to like subscribe and share and follow us on social media at life after mlm podcast and my advocacy at the real roberta blevins you can find all of the links to the social accounts in our show notes 
And if you just listened to that incredible story and you thought, oh my God, I have a story just like that that needs to be told, hit me up, therealrobertablevins at gmail.com. I would love to have you on the show to share your story and start your journey in life after MLM. See you next time, Hans. <laughs>